Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Every good coach uh, focuses on the fundamentals of the sport that they're coaching. Uh, no team can succeed if they fail in the fundamentals. You know, a football team that cannot tackle or block or run the right routes is a team that will fail. A basketball team that can't dribble or pass or shoot or play good defense is a team that will fail. During his long and successful career, Peyton Manning, the great quarterback, uh, took one week every summer to go back and meet with David Cutcliffe, his old college quarterback's coach. And during that week, they would focus on the fundamentals of playing quarterback. They would spend time evaluating his throwing motion, his visuals, his footwork, and all that it took to his fundamentals of playing that position. Even in his 15th year of NFL football, when he'd already established himself as one of the greatest that had ever played the game, he would still head back to North Carolina, where his coach lived, and spend a week going back over the fundamentals. All because he understood that if you are going to be successful, you have to understand the fundamentals. If you fail at the fundamentals, you fail. Successful quarterback must be the best at the fundamentals. Well, Paul reminds Timothy of this same concept. A successful church and a successful minister is one who focuses on the fundamentals, the basics. There are certain marks that must be true if a minister is going to be considered successful in the sight of God. The text this morning is vital because these fundamentals are things that have been deserted today in the American church. In order for Cambria Baptist Church to be successful, we must keep the main thing, the main thing. So what exactly is the main thing then? What are, what are these fundamentals? What are, what is the minister to focus his time and energy on? What are, what are the fundamentals or the marks of a faithful minister in a faithful church? Well, let's look at them. First Timothy chapter four, beginning in verse 13. Paul writes, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This day of the fundamentals, so Paul does for Timothy and for us. He reminds Timothy of the, of the fundamentals on which he's to focus his ministry. Now, as we look at the text, we notice that the marks of a faithful minister are noted by his tasks and by his motivations. Let's first look at the tasks of the faithful minister. In order to be successful, in order to be a successful minister of Christ, there are certain tasks that must be the focus of life. He says in verses 13 and 14, until I come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, as we look at these tasks, we can divide these into two key 
focuses or two key fundamentals on which the minister focuses. First, on devotion to the word. He says, devote yourself. The word devote yourself means to give focus or attention to or priority to this. It implies strong preparation. It implies a complete commitment of life. It says you're to devote yourself to three things, three aspects of ministry of the word to which the minister is to devote himself. First, to public reading. Means to audible reading in public. Here and in the other two uses of this word in the New Testament, in Acts 13 and 2 Corinthians 3, it refers to public reading in a religious gathering. In other words, the minister is to devote himself to the public reading of the word of God. The early church took note of this and would begin, they began to collect all the letters that the apostles and their disciples wrote. And they began to read them in the, in the public assembly. And so on the Lord's Day, as God's people assembled together, there were actually two public readings. One from the Old Testament and one from the writings of the apostles. Paul commanded them to do this. First Thessalonians 5.24, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. In Colossians 4.16, he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church in Laodicea. You see, the word of God is to be the central focus of the church. But that, that requires that the church read the word. And so each Sunday, we seek to emphasize the word of God through the public reading of Scripture. We do this twice on Sundays. Twice we publicly read the word. Once from a psalm and once from a book of the New Testament. Today we finished reading through the book of Titus. A section every Sunday we read through the book. Now it's not something that we do out of ritual. These aren't just simply throwaway times. We got to fill the time here somehow on Sunday morning so you feel like you got your money's worth. No, it has a purpose. We do this because we believe that these are the very words of God. And so if we want to hear from God, we have to hear his words. We read his words. And from this text, we see that the primary function of public reading of scripture in the worship service is to lay the groundwork for the preaching and teaching to follow it. It prepares our hearts to receive the words of God and the explanation and application of those words. And it reminds us that our worship, our words are always a response to God's words to us. When we come to worship, God is the one who has gathered us together. He is the one who speaks the words first. And we respond in worship. And so we read the word of God. But one man says the public reading of scripture serves a deeper social function as well. Modern studies of narrative and human social experience and the role of reading and readers 
reveal that reading and hearing certain significant texts influences the formation, shaping, defining, and redefining of individual and corporate identity. In other words, we do this to shape us as a people. We read the scriptures publicly because they answer the question, who are we? What is a church? Why do we gather? The public reading of the text reminds us of who we are, who we serve, and what's expected of us. So we begin the services with a reading from the Psalms. It reminds us of our worship to God. In the middle of the service, we read from a New Testament text. When we do that, don't disengage. That is the one time, two times, three times every service where you are hearing God's words. God is speaking. Don't let your mind wander. Recognize that at that moment you are hearing from God himself. So we read the word because it's the foundation of our faith. And just as one can't play football or basketball or soccer without the ball, so one cannot worship without the word. It would be foolish to go attempt to play a sport without, without the ball. You can't do it. Ever tried to play imaginary football? You don't know where it's at. It's what happens when churches try to worship without the word. It means that the, the means and the method of our worship is the word. So we read it publicly. And the emphasis on scripture also contrasts with the empty, empty prattle and myths that Paul referred to back in verse 7 that the minister is to oppose. How do you know if what you are saying and what you're listening to is not empty myths and prattle and silly talk? Well, you can be confident that if it is God's words, that it is significant. The way to avoid all that is through an emphasis on the word so that we are to devote ourselves to the public reading of the word. The minister's second task, though, in devotion to the word is to encourage and exhort the people to follow the message of the text. He says, devote yourself to exhortation. Here, Timothy is to summon his hearers to respond to the scripture that's been read. In other texts, it's referred to as preaching. This is the use of the scripture to bring instruction, to encourage, to console, to command God's people to change their behavior based on the word of God. Faithful minister is to devote himself to the faithful proclamation of the word for the purpose of life change. Exhortation challenges people to apply the truth of God to their lives. And, and through exhortation, the minister warns the people of God about disobeying his word. And he challenges them to obey his word, reminding them that God promises blessings when we obey his word and judgment when we disobey it. And so this exhortation can take the form of rebuke or correction or warning or counsel or comfort. But it always involves binding the conscience of the hearers to the word of God. The church should never settle for silly or irreverent or foolish unfaithful preaching should never settle for preaching that takes the form of moralistic sermonettes or story time with the pastor. 
The church should never settle for what's been referred to as diving board preaching. Where you read a text as a way to kind of dive into whatever it was you really wanted to talk about. Sometimes I call it punch card preaching. You got all the things you got to talk about and you punch your spiritual punch card. We should never settle for that. Instead, we understand that true exhortation comes out of the word of God. One man said this, it was taken for granted from the beginning that Christian preaching should be expository preaching. That is, that all Christian instruction and exhortation would be drawn out of the passage which had been read. You see, the primary task of the faithful minister is the faithful proclamation of the word of God for the purpose of life change. And so a successful, faithful church devotes itself to the public reading of Scripture and exhortation. But third, it devotes itself to teaching. This word is the word that we also translate as doctrine. It bears a distinct intellectual character to it. Exhortation and teaching are closely connected. Teaching is the activity, the instruction, and discussion that's associated with authoritative doctrine. It's a teaching of belief foundational theology of the word of God. And it means that the faithful minister devotes himself to faithfully teach the theology of scripture. He doesn't just tell you how to act, but he also tells you what the Bible says about how to think. The faithful minister uses multiple avenues to teach the deep things of scripture, the hard things of of scripture. The faithful minister does not settle for soft overviews or shallow teaching. One man said the agenda Paul spells out for Timothy emphasizes the centrality of the text for theological correctness. It includes not just a basic reading but a fuller a fuller awareness of the text's meaning. Another man said teaching involves the systematic explanation of the word of God. The point is that an excellent minister is to disseminate sound teaching to all people at all times through all means. That's the heart and soul of the ministry since the word is the only source of life and truth. But why is deep teaching so important? Why is it so important that you be challenged through the word? Because it makes a difference what you believe. You can have a right heart and you ought to have a right heart and a right spirit, but it alone will not advance you in sanctification. There are certain things that you must know, certain facts of doctrine and morality that you must be taught and believe that you must accept and embrace in order to be accepted and grow in Christ. Why is it that we have so much teaching in the church? Because this is the uh, the fundamental purpose for our existence. Our purpose as a church is to do the work of the ministry, to give you the tools to serve Christ. And that comes through teaching. Through the word, we learn how to live our lives to God's glory. So why is it that we've revamped our children's ministry, our one, our Sunday school to include more teaching and explanation of the word? 
Why is it that we've revamped our youth ministry to include more teaching and explanation? Why is it that we spend so much time in our adult ministries with teaching and explanation? Why is it that we spend so much time in the Sunday morning service reading the Bible and talking about the Bible and preaching the Bible? Because that's why we exist. That's our purpose. This is the primary task of the church. It's the most important thing we do together. We're not a social club. We're not a a community action group. We are a church. That means we are the body of Christ, an outpost of the kingdom of God. So his word is the basis of all we do. It's the sum of all we do. One man said, even today, the careful selection and clear interpretive reading of an appropriate portion of Holy Writ is the most important part of public worship. And even today, if the singing takes so much time that little is left for exhortation and teaching, something is wrong. A faithful minister is not measured by his social action. A faithful minister is not measured by his humor Or his personality. A faithful minister is measured by his faithfulness and devotion to the word. John Flavel, a Puritan pastor, said, The harder a man works at teaching the word, the more honorable he is. And this diligence is necessary because it's not with us preachers as with other laborers. They find their work as they leave it. So do not we sin and Satan unravel almost all we do. The impressions we make on our people's souls in one sermon vanished before the next. So the faithful minister's lifestyle is to be characterized as a devotion to an immersion in the word of God. Because scripture is the material by which an excellent ministry and an excellent minister builds it. There is to be a commitment, a devotion to the word. But the second task of a faithful minister and a faithful church is a commitment to the ministry. He says in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. He says, do not neglect the gift. Don't be unconcerned about it. Don't forget about it. Don't set it to the side. Don't forget the gift you have. That gift, it's the word charismatic. It refers to a free gift of grace from the Spirit. The faithful minister has the gifts to perform the ministry to which God has called him. But what is he talking about? What is this gift that Paul is talking about? There's a lot of ideas. One commentator, Towner, says, in this context, it's either referring to a particular manifestation or manifestations of the Spirit for service or a reference to the Holy Spirit as God's gift. But the preceding reference to a particular gift of ministering strongly suggests here that the gift in Timothy refers to his giftedness or empowerment for ministry. Another commentator, Hendrickson, says that the gift of discernment, it's the gift of discernment between true and false and consequently being able to exhort and teach and guide. Another commentator, Lee, says the gift likely represented an aptitude for teaching and preaching together with an ability to understand gospel and discern error. 
A Calvin wrote that it was a grace from which he'd been endowed for the building of the church. A man named Alford says it's the gift of teaching or ruling the church. So what is this specific gift that Timothy had? We don't know. We don't know. We're not told what this gift is. But that's not the point. The point isn't what the specific gift is. The point is that God gifts those he calls. He gifts them with the abilities they need to accomplish their calling. So they're to be committed to the ministry that God has granted to them. While the gift is a gift from God, the command not to neglect it reminds us that when we receive our spiritual gifts, we have a responsibility with them. God's gifts must never be left unused. God has gifted you for specific roles within this church. And you have a responsibility to use those gifts. It is your responsibility to use them for the betterment of the body of Christ. We have a question. How do we know if an individual is gifted for the ministry? How do we know if God has gifted someone for the ministry? I mean, really, this is a question of how does the church know if God has called a man to ministry? Well, he says here that this gift was given to Timothy by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. The word given is is a passive word indicating God gave it to him by prophecy. What is he talking about? Well, this prophecy probably refers to words of the spirit spoken by a prophet to confirm and identify Timothy's giftedness and authorize his ministry to the church. And this was then confirmed by the laying on of hands. Timothy, uh, Paul reminded Timothy of this earlier. First Timothy 1.18, I charge you, I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Well, what does that look like? Perhaps it looked a little bit like what happened with Paul himself. In Acts 16, it says now, or Acts 13, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Well, That's probably a little bit of what it looked like for Timothy. After this, they laid hands on them. This practice of laying on of hands is found in the Old Testament. It's found in Numbers 17 and Deuteronomy 34. And it's used there to set apart someone for service to God. We see it as well in the New Testament where they're set apart for the work of God and confer the Spirit of God on them. It's, It's a ritual signifying the blessing of the Holy Spirit. This happened to Timothy. Paul refers to it again in 2 Timothy 1.6, where he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This probably happened when Paul met Timothy and spent some time in Lystra. Acts 16 talks about this on Paul's second missionary journey. But what does it look like today? We don't have prophets today. We have the word of God. So how do we know if someone's called today? Because we understand that God works differently than the apostolic age, because we have the word of God. Well, the spirit speaks to us through his word. 
So how do we know if one is called of God to the ministry and gifted to the ministry? Well, we saw it back in 1 Timothy 3. We saw that it begins with a burning desire, an unyielding desire to serve in the ministry. But that call is then confirmed by the church. The church observes whether or not that individual fulfills and contains the qualifications of a minister. Today, the church generally does this through something we call ordination. In it, the church confirms the character qualifications of the individual. And usually they call together a panel of men who know ministry and understand the word of God and theology. And they examine the theology and the beliefs of that individual. And after a satisfactory examination of that individual by the church of his character and his qualifications of his beliefs and his doctrine by that panel, the church then either confirms the call or instructs him. I don't know that that's actually it. And then finally, that call is then confirmed by the church that actually calls that person to be their pastor. This process is important because it tells us that that person is called by God. They serve as a confirmation to the individual and to the church of his gift from the Holy Spirit to accomplish the ministry to which he's been called. The minister is then to consume himself with that ministry. He's not to neglect it. He's, Paul says in 2 Timothy to fan it into flame. So the task of the faithful minister is complete devotion to the word of God and to the ministry of that word through the gifting of the Holy Spirit to his church. He is to be faithful in his tasks. We also see the motivation of the faithful minister. This is verses 15 and 16. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, as we look at these motivations of the minister, we discover that they actually correlate to those tasks we just looked at. The first motivation is to set a godly example. He says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. That word practice means to take care of, to, to, to cultivate, to take pains with something. But here's the key. Back in verse 13, he said, do, or, or back in verse 14, he says, do not neglect the gift. The word neglect is the Greek word, ah, melee. This word, practice these things, is the word melee. It means the opposite. Ah means not doing it. And not having that prefix means to do it. It's the opposite of it. What does it look like not to neglect the gifts? It looks like practicing these things, taking care of them, immersing yourself in the ministry means to be absorbed in it. Timothy is to become so closely acquainted with the practicing of the gifting of the Holy Spirit that it becomes second nature to him. One pastor said it this way, when not involved in ministry, the excellent minister is preparing, praying and planning for it. The excellent minister is consumed by his work. He's never off duty. But he does this not because he's a workaholic. He does this to be an example, to set himself as a godly example. Because the proclamation of the gospel cannot be separated from the qualifications or the character of the one proclaiming it. 
See, no minister is what he should be. He's human. So one pastor said it this way, a spiritual leader must not try to hide his flaws from his people, but rather allow them to see his progress in spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and maturity. He's to set a godly example. As a church, we are to set a godly example. When people come in, they should notice that something is different. Our character is different. We act and respond and react differently because we're driven by the word. Secondly, the motivation is to provide a protective presence, to provide a protective presence. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. By so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He says, keep a close watch. This word relates back to that word devote. It's the same word. Means to give attention to, to fix attention on. And what is he to devote himself to, to fix his attention on? Teaching. Doctrine. That same word is verse 13. That is the focus. That is the motivation. To persist in it, not to give up, not to stop, but to continue on it and remain on it and harp on it. The faithful minister is to watch his life and his teaching. He's to persist in it, never waver from it, never give up on it, never allow anything else to become the priority. Why? He does this as a protective presence. He says, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, the preaching and teaching of the church, of the minister holds eternal ramifications because by it, the minister and the people are saved. How are they saved? What does he mean by this? Well, first, through the preaching of the word, the gospel is proclaimed and individuals enter into a relationship with God. Paul tells us in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So through our teaching our preaching, salvation occurs. But secondly, it also includes perseverance. Because salvation is not a one-time event. Justification is a one-time event. The initiation of salvation. But sanctification, the outworking of salvation, is an all-of-life event. And it is through this perseverance that we demonstrate our faith. True believers persevere in their faith. The concept of perseverance is essential to salvation. John Stodd explains it this way. Salvation always and everywhere originates not in us, but only in the grace and mercy of God. Nevertheless, the reality of our salvation has to be demonstrated in God's works of love. Perseverance is not meritorious. It's not the meritorious cause, but rather the ultimate evidence of our salvation. John says it this way in his first epistle. Over and over, John 1, 2, uh, John 2, 3 through 6. By this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments 
is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. First John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made plain that they were not of us. First John three, six to 10. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. First John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. First John five eighteen. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Here's the point. Those who are true believers live out their faith. Those who are not living out their faith give evidence that they are not true believers. And it is through the teaching of the word that we learn how to live out our faith and evidence that we are true believers and persevere in the faith. You see, the faithful minister devotes himself to the word and the faithful church devotes itself to the teaching of the word because eternity is at stake. When the word is ignored, many who think they are going to heaven are not. But through the teaching of scripture, it's revealed that they are not indeed the children of God and have the opportunity to come to him in true faith. The faithful minister persists in the proclamation of the word of God because through it, he's working out his own salvation, as Philippians 2.12 says, and assisting the people to do the same. See, faithfulness in the church is measured on faithfulness and devotion and immersion in the word of God. It's not about warm, fuzzy feelings. It's not about entertainment. It's about the word and the living out of that word. One man said the paradigm of Christian ministry directed specifically to Timothy, but applicable to ministers of all times stands in judgment on those who neglect the teaching of Scripture, consume themselves with arguments about words devoid of godliness, bring reproach upon the church by their sinful lives, refuse to immerse themselves in the thing of God, and as a result are destroying not only themselves, but also those who listen and follow their example. This text means that the successful minister of God and the ministry is not about numbers or the feelings of the flock. Success is not found in the entertainment of the Sunday service. The mark of a faithful minister and ministry in church is the devotion to the faithful proclamation of Scripture, resulting in the spiritual growth 
of the hearers. This means that a true man of God will concentrate totally on personal holiness and public instruction. He'll not be sidetracked by the things that would steal his attention. Because the church, as the outpost of the kingdom of God, is devoted to the proclamation of that kingdom and the king. And the faithful exposition of the word. We do this because of the eternal ramifications of it. Our salvation depends on it. The moment we are going to celebrate communion, we are going to remind ourselves that this gathering is about a lot more than just social fellowship. It's a lot more than simply building friendships. It's way more than simply cultural, societal interaction. We are a church an outpost of the kingdom of God, devoted to the word of God, and as a result, bound together by that word to serve one another. So we read the covenant together to remind ourselves of our responsibilities to one another. We read the text of scripture in which we celebrate communion, for by it, God speaks to us. And we remind ourselves of our responsibility and salvation to persevere and persist in it and to make right any sins in our life. As we conclude and enter into communion, there are three challenges I'd like you to remember from this text. Hopefully you take away a lot more, but there's three things I want you to note. So what? Number one, don't settle for spiritual junk food. Much of what presents itself as Christian today is nothing more than marshmallow fluff. It sure tastes good, but has zero nutritional value. Don't settle for it. Insist on teaching which dives deep into the word of God exhorts you hard to obey the word of God, encourages you in your walk with God, and hurts you when you're sinning. Don't settle for spiritual junk food. Number two, prioritize the word in worship. Too often we prioritize our feelings. Oh, that one got me going. Yeah, that one didn't do it for me. No, when we gather together, we prioritize the word. We sing the word. We read the word. We pray the word. We preach the word. Through the ordinances, we picture the word so that we can go out and live the word. And in all of that, it is the word that is the center. So prioritize the word in worship. Number three. Look to your salvation. Test to see whether you are of the faith. Are you persevering? Are you living out what you say you believe? Does your life Monday through Saturday look like the way you present it on Sunday? Or do you just do your God stuff and get it out of the way so that you can do your real life stuff? Look to your salvation. Salvation includes all of life and impacts 
every area and every aspect and a dogged obedience to the word of God, regardless to how it makes me feel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity that you have given us to look at your word. Lord, we thank you for the word itself. You have given us instruction and guidance in how we are to obey you and live our lives and work out our salvation. Lord, help us to keep the main thing the main thing. That your word would be central in all things. That in it, you might receive all the praise and the honor and the glory that you deserve. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.